Well, good morning. Open up with me to Matthew chapter 6, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, Matthew chapter 6. Um, today is the one Sunday of the year that we get to talk about money and stewardship and stewarding God's resources. And so uh, this would have been a good Sunday to miss, but you didn't, so tough luck. All right, uh, Matthew chapter 6, if you will stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to read verses 19 through 21. And God's Word says this, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. God, we love you. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray now as we walk through this passage of scripture together, Lord, that you would teach us and grow us. God, that you'd shape us into the image of Jesus because we have been in the church today. God, would you give us ears to hear from you this morning? God, we don't just want to hear your word, but Father, I pray for soft hearts in this room. God, that not only that we would hear it, but Lord, we would receive it, God, that it would change us from the inside out. And God, not only that, we pray for obedient hands and feet that we could walk out the truth of the scriptures that we encounter today. God, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'd like to share with you quickly again the name of someone uh, that you've probably never heard of before. I did this last week, but I came across this story this week as well, and um, I thought this was a great reminder today. It's the story of a man named William Borden. William Borden was born in 1887. He was born into an extremely wealthy family. And upon graduating from high school 18 years later in Chicago, Illinois, Borden was going to be the heir to an incredibly great fortune. But despite that, despite the life that was ahead of him, William Borden desired and had a God-given call to be a missionary. He believed that God was calling him to reject a life of ease and comfort and to instead pursue his calling on his life. When he expressed that calling to several family members and friends, he had one friend that it's recorded was in disbelief of this choice. Why would you give up this great fortune to go and to be a missionary? And his friend was quoted as saying this, that he was throwing his life away. He studied at Yale, and and at Yale there was 1,300 students at the time. Borden began to express this desire to be a missionary, and he used this opportunity at Yale to pursue that. Of the 1,300 students that gathered there at Yale University, within just a few years, 1,000 of the 1,300 students were gathering each week for Bible study and prayer, a group that was started by Borden. He knew his call was to be a missionary. After graduating from college, he set his eyes onto the Muslim people of China. And history records that he wasn't interested in pursuing his wealth. Instead, he wanted to give much of it away to the point where he would not even buy himself a car, but instead gave away any of those resources to people that needed it. History records that he boarded a boat and on his way to China, they were sailing past Egypt. And he told them that he wanted to stop there at Egypt where he could spend several months studying Arabic on his way to China to reach the Muslim people there in China. But in his short time there in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis And he died within a month of his arrival to Egypt at the age of 25. One American newspaper said this about his life. It said that a wave of sorrow went around the world when Borden died. Because he not only gave away his wealth, but he gave away himself. 
in such a joyous and natural way that it seemed like a privilege rather than a sacrifice on his part. And on his tombstone, you can still go find it to this day, are written these words at the bottom, that apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. Now take the opposite of a life like that. You've probably heard the story of a man named King Tut. King Tut was the boy king of Egypt who died at the age of 17. If you study history, you read that King Tut was buried with a lot of things. He was buried with solid gold chariots, buried with golden artifacts inside of a gold tomb and a burial site that was filled with tons, literally tons and tons of gold. Why? Because Egyptian religion believed and taught that in the afterlife, you could take all of your earthly treasure with you. You would be sealed in the tomb, and when you crossed over into eternity, you could take everything with you. But as we know now, thousands of years later, after the death of King Tut, everything that he was buried with is now sitting in museums around the world. And it's this reminder for us this morning, and, and again, we, we talk about this once a year, so um, please don't get out of, been out of shape this morning. Um, what we do with the resources that God entrusts to us, it matters, and it matters for eternity. Because the scripture is abundantly clear, and we see this in the life of William Borden and then the opposite of the life of King Tut, that we can't take anything with us. It's, you're never going to see a, a hearse driving through town with a U-Haul full of everybody's wor like worldly possessions on the way to the gravesite. It doesn't work like that. But you and I have the opportunity, according to the scriptures, to send things ahead. That while we can't take it with us, we can send ahead what God has entrusted to us by pouring into the kingdom of God, by living as generous people. Now, I know this is a touchy subject. I know people, if, you're, if you've got families traveling today, if you're watching online, you probably already turned this off. I get it. But why do we need to talk about this? We don't do it often. We don't want to be known as, quote, that church. But let me give us a few realities. Here's reality number one. Finances are part of the life of the church and missions. All right? I think we can all agree on that. Like every other thing in the world functions um, on like financial investment, and the local church and missions are no different. This place is driven by the generosity of people. And here's just the, the reality. The moment that we stop being generous to the local church is the moment that the local church doesn't exist anymore. That's a very biblical thing. Let me show you. We see this in the New Testament when Paul was talking about the Philippian church, Philippians 4, 15 and 16. He says, and you, the Philippians, know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in what? The matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. What does Paul say? In the mission work, in the starting of local churches, it was fueled by the generosity of God's people, specifically the people in the Philippian church. If we aren't generous, the local can't, church can't do what the local church does. Second, finances are part of the Christian's walk with Jesus. This is such an important reminder for us. If Jesus is Lord of my life, if I've confessed him as Lord, Romans 10, 9, and 10, then he's Lord over all of my life. Like Jesus can't just be Lord over my marriage, my thoughts, and my parenting, but he's not Lord over my relationships, my job, and my finances. If Jesus is Lord over my life, he has to be Lord over the entire thing, not just part of it. We don't get to pick and choose where Jesus has lordship in my life. Third, 
And I didn't realize this very much until this week. Jesus talks a lot about finances and possessions in the scriptures. There's a lot of places where he gives encouragement with it, a lot of places where he gives warnings about it. If you read the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there's over 2,000 verses dealing with finances and possessions in the scriptures of Jesus's recorded words in the gospels. This was mind blowing to me. 15% of Jesus's recorded words have to deal with finances and possessions. Did you know that there's more verses in the Bible about finances and possessions than there are on faith and prayer? That's amazing to me. And I didn't realize that until this week. Why is that a big deal? Because for the follower of Jesus, the focus of my life is the scriptures, is the kingdom of God, it's taking the gospel anywhere and everywhere to everyone, but what is the greatest rival for my heart aside from Jesus? It's my possessions. 100% of the time, one of the things that is the most consuming thought to every one of us in this room, everybody within the sound of my voice, that consumes our thought life typically more than anything else is the pursuit of a little bit more. And that's why Jesus tells us a lot in the Gospels, a lot in the Scriptures, be careful. Be careful. We read that in Luke 16, 13, from the mouth of Jesus himself, no servant can have two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And what's the warning for us? Luke 16, 13, you can't serve both God and money. Money is never an issue until it is one. It's the one thing that tends to sneak up on us more than anything else. We're constantly wanting a little bit more. So how do we control it under the lordship of Jesus? Two things to consider today as we think about this topic, and I am not going to ask anything from you in case you're worried about that this morning as well. I will ask nothing from you today. Let me give you two points. The first is the words treasure, treasure. That's not a typo. That's literally the first point, treasure, treasure. Look at Matthew 6, 19. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I can remember when I was 14 years old and I got my first mowing job as a kid. It was a lady that lived three houses down. She was a widow and she needed her yard mowed. So I offered to do it for $20 a week. It was the greatest $20 I earned every week. But I cheated. I didn't use a push mower because I'm not dumb, I'm a little bit smart. I got my dad's riding mower and I used his gas can and so I didn't have to pay for the mower or the gas and I didn't have to do any work. I just rode the thing around the yard. It was incredible. But every week she would hand me either a check or she would hand me a $20 bill. And I can remember the first time that I received that from that lady and I went home and I was so excited. And then my dad told me, he said, awesome, you've just earned your first income. The first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna go to the bank and you're gonna open up a bank account so that you learn to properly um, steward the things that you are earning. Why did he do that? Because when we think of, of storing up the wealth that God entrusts to us, how do we do that? We do that through the banking system. But here in Matthew chapter 6, we're kind of met with this same idea, but there's not a banking system involved. It's likely in this first century culture that Jesus is talking about, their banking system was much different than ours. Where we would invest our dollars into the bank, these listeners, and we see Jesus alluding to that here, would have invested and saved in things like clothing, food and grain, jewelry and precious metals, things that had value and worth in their society. And so when you look at verse 19, what's Jesus' command? It's one that transcends cultures and it's important for us. Do not get consumed 
with storing up and collecting treasures here on earth. If you have a hard copy of the scriptures there in verse 19, an important word to circle there is that word collect. If you were to to think on that phrase a little bit more, some Bible translations say, um, don't store up treasures on earth. Some Bible translations would say, don't heap up treasures on earth. A very literal translation of that word is don't treasure treasure. Jesus is warning us here not to treasure our treasure, not to become so fixated on the pursuit of wealth or the hoarding of our wealth. Why? Because it's temporal, it's fleeting, and it can distract you from what God has called you to do as a follower of Jesus. Solomon warns about this, the wealthy king of Israel in the book of Ecclesiastes, the man who literally had everything by worldly standards. And what's he say in Ecclesiastes 5.10? The one who loves silver is what? Never satisfied with silver. Whoever loves wealth is what? Never satisfied with income. He says it's futile. Because the pursuit of wealth, the hoarding of wealth, when not framed in the parameters of the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus is a constant, never-ending chase with no end. It's like grasping for the wind. You can keep reaching, but you're never going to catch it. Then look at verse 19. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. So don't store up treasures on earth. Don't treasure treasure. We're moth and rust destroying. We're thieves breaking and steal. What's he reminding us? The temporary nature of earthly things. In an instant, some of you have experienced this. Things that you once valued and treasured can in an instant be lost. You had it in one moment and then it was like, you don't even know how it happened and you open your eyes and everything you treasured is completely gone. In this culture, what does Jesus say? That clothing that you invested in, those fresh threads that you needed to have so bad, they could be eaten by moths. I mean, I've had that happen before. I don't think it was moths, but sometimes you pull out that one t-shirt that you loved so much that's been in the dryer too much, and it gets that one hole in it, and it's worthless. You loved it, that one shirt that you just had to have, but it gets one hole in it, and you throw it away. It's worthless at that point. The grain that they would have invested in, that that phrase there where Jesus says, where rust destroys, the root of that is actually a, a word that talks about consuming or eating. And it was the idea in this first century that they would have stored up grain because grain was valuable, But the moment that a rodent gets in there, some sort of vermin, what happens? It's not valuable anymore because it's been consumed and eaten. Those jewels, stolen by thieves. Let's bring it into our culture. Let's get a little bit real here. Let's feel this in our souls. That stock market that we put so much value in, it could crash at any moment. The dollar that we hope in, its value could continue to go down. That new car that we had to have so bad, I read something this week that said that the moment that you take a new car off the lot and you leave, boom, 25% of its value is gone. That's a horrible investment. But man, it happens. I can remember when I got my, one of my first cars, it was a Honda Accord. I mean, I was so excited about it. I took such good care of it. I was sitting at a stoplight in Lancaster, Ohio, and a group of teenagers in a Jeep Grand Cherokee plowed into the back of me at 45 miles an hour. It's amazing how something that used to be so valuable immediately loses all of its value. It can be taken from you in a moment. The value of your home, it will fluctuate. We're all experiencing that in some capacity now. Now, are any of those things bad? No. If God blesses you and you work hard, enjoy the fruits of your labor, that is is good. 
And God encourages that thing. Take care of your family. Plan for the future. That's biblical. But here's the warning from Jesus in Matthew 6. Don't let it consume you. Do not let things possess you. It's not wrong to possess things, but when things begin to possess us, that's when it becomes wrong. When we don't put our possessions and valuables and treasures under the lordship of Jesus and view them through the lens of the kingdom, that's where it gets dangerous. So what's the inverse? Point number two, we talked about treasuring treasure. Point number two is treasure up treasure. Look at verse 20. Jesus tells us, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. So this is the inverse of verse 19. Instead of only treasuring treasure, collecting treasure, what does Jesus say? No, store it up in heaven. Invest yourself and your possessions and the things God has given to you. Invest them in the kingdom of God. How do we do that? Let me give us three critical things, and and this was just so helpful for me personally this week, um, that help us as followers of Jesus to truly live this out. Here's the first one. It's going to blow your mind. You ready for it? First one is this. God owns everything. I know that's cliche and that's simple, but that is really good theology. God owns everything. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, this is God speaking, the earth, everything in it, the world, and its inhabitants. What's it say in verse 1? Belong to the Lord. Let me read that again. The earth, everything in it, the world and its inhabitants do what? They belong to the Lord. Now, I'm not a Bible scholar, but I'm pretty sure when David said the word everything, he meant everything. I've read the beginning of the Bible, and, and it says that Before creation, all that was was God. And then he spoke and things were. That means he's the creator of everything. Therefore, everything is his. Let me give us another one here. Job chapter 41. This is God speaking again. Who confronted me that I should repay him? And here's what God says. Everything under heaven belongs to me. I mean, God's very clear in the scriptures. There's that word again. Everything. Everything belongs to God. If you, have, if you have kids in the room, or maybe you, uh, you were a kid before, I know that's true. And I can remember when my girls were like, uh, Sophia was probably maybe seven, and I ticked her off about something. And I can remember so clearly, we lived in Worthington at the time, where she got so mad, and she, she stormed off up the steps. Any parents, you feel me? Like, you know what I'm talking about here? It's where you just want to backhand somebody, but you can't, right? But uh, she's storming off, and she's going up the steps, storming up my steps of my house, And she says these words. Y'all feel this? I'm going to my room. What do you say as a parent? Pause. Don't you dare move. Let me explain something to you real quick, little girl. That That room that you're about to go up to, that's mine. This house that you just stomped up, that's mine. The bed that you're gonna sleep in tonight, that's mine. Everything in your room is mine. And I let you borrow it. That's good theology right there. Because that's exactly what God is telling us. The house you live in, that's his. The car you drive, that's his. The children you parent, those are his. The job you have, that's his. The bank account, it's his. Everything is God's. Everything. And when we acknowledge that truth, it leads us to the second one. This is, I hope this is helpful for you. We're managers, we're not owners. We're managers, we're not owners. Jesus illustrates this several times in the Gospels, but let me show you a specific one in Luke chapter 16. 
In Luke chapter 16, there's a manager who is left in charge of the assets that were given to him by a rich man. And then here's what happens. That man, the rich man comes back and the manager has to give an account for what he did with what was not his. It was on loan to him. Luke 16, 10 through 12. Jesus says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you've not been faithful with, with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? Simply put, we could phrase it this way, that a manager manages the assets for the owner's benefit. I, I was the manager of a pizza franchise for a long time. And I didn't get to go in there and just exercise my will. No, somebody owned that restaurant and I had to do what they wanted me to do. It was not my responsibility to come up with what to do. I just asked the owner, what do I do with what you left me in charge of? Christians, that's exactly how we approach worldly possessions. Jesus, everything I have isn't mine. I don't own it. You've just left me to steward it. Now, what do you want me to do with what you've given me to manage? That's what the Bible tells us to do. We're managers. We're not owners. So think about this. If God owns everything, we're managers and we're not owners. What does the owner command us to do with what he's given to us? He says, be generous with it. Be generous with what I've given you. Don't let it become a God in your life. Don't let it replace the position of the one who gave it to you. We do that so often. No, leave Jesus as Lord, let him entrust things to you, and then manage those things according to his will for his kingdom through generosity. There's so many scriptures we could talk about here. Let me give us just a few about generosity. First, we read in 2 Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. Why? Since God loves a cheerful giver. There's an important truth. Don't wait to be cheerful about giving. Give and then watch joy follow. It's the old quote, I've never missed what I've given away. Second thing we see about generosity in the scriptures, generosity, the kingdom of God, should be a privilege, it shouldn't be a burden. It should be a privilege and not a burden. 2 Corinthians 8, 2, Paul is commending these folks and he says, during a severe, severe trial, brought on by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty. Do you hear that? Think about that for a second. Severe trial, brought on by affliction, and then what does he say? But their abundant joy. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, rich generosity. What does that show us? These believers were dirt poor, but they wanted to invest in the kingdom of God. They could have come up with every excuse in the books. I can't support Paul's work. I can't send money over this direction. I can't do any of those things. But verse four of 2 Corinthians 8 said that they were begging Paul for the privilege of being generous. I've heard it phrased this way before. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to choose to be generous to be generous. Generosity overflows from the heart. Here's the third one. Generosity is contagious. <laughs> I, I never knew this was in the Bible. But this blew my mind this week. When the tabernacle was being built in the book of Exodus, the Bible actually says in Exodus 36 that the people were so excited about God's activity that Moses had to stand up and he was like, y'all, 
Stop giving. Like we have, we, there's too much. We, we can't even use what you all have given to the building of the tabernacle. Like please quit, keep it, and go to the steakhouse or something. Like we're done. Like we don't need anymore. Exodus 3 verses, or Exodus 36, 5 through 7. Generosity is contagious. When God's moving, you want to give to God's activity. And here's the last one about generosity. Matthew 6, 21. Your heart follows your investments. Your heart follows your investments. It's a basic principle. What's it say? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Simple things. If, if you invest a portion of your income in Apple stock this week, I guarantee something's going to happen. You're going to care about Apple stock immediately because you invested into it. If you buy a house, it's very rare that someone invests into a house and then all of a sudden they're like, eh, I, don't, I just don't care. You care. You want to make sure that what you've invested into um, thrives and is taken care of and functions well. Invest in the local church and what happens. You care about what happens to and what happens in that church. Invest in a missionary. And you care about when you get those updates because you want to see their mission work thrive. It's a very basic Bible principle. If you want to develop a heart for something, you want to care deeply about something, invest generously into it because investment creates interest. I mean, that's a basic Bible thing. Investment creates interest. So I shared this a couple of years ago with our church, and I thought it'd be an appropriate way to close out today. Let me ask you a question. Just think about this for a moment. What would you do for 10 or what would you do with $10 million? Just think about that in your head right now. So you went into the mailbox tomorrow afternoon, and there was a check in there from a rich businessman who lives somewhere on the West Coast, and they sent you a check for $10 million with a note inside that said, have fun, good luck, hope you enjoy it. What would you do with $10 million? If we had a moment, I'd love to hear before you leave today what you would do with $10 million. But I'd imagine we'd hear things about, oh man, there's been this house that I've been eyeing, and I'd go and I'd just pay cash for it. I'd imagine we'd hear things about lavish vacations, going down to Cabo for 10 months, just because you can, right? Lavish vacations. Maybe you'd put money away for your kid's college fund. Some of you are like, nope, they're going to pay for it on their own, right? We'd put money away for college funds. Maybe we would donate to charity in some capacity if if somebody gave you $10 million, what would you do with it? And I shared this a couple of years ago, and this, I think, is a good way to close this out when we talk about generosity and investment and all of those things. Back in the early 90s, um, there was a, a book written on the morality of American culture. This is the 90s. We're like 30 years ago. Morality of American culture. And I think we could assume, I hope I'm not taking too much liberty here, that it hasn't gotten better in most cases. In fact, I think we could safely assume it's gotten a lot worse, American morality. But back in the early 90s, they did this study for this book, and they took a study sample of 2,000 people, and they asked them a series of questions, and they were trying to come up and understand the moral compass of American culture. And so they asked people, they said, answer this series of questions. It's 100% anonymous. Nobody will know what you answered. And the question was this, not what would you do with $10 million. It was what would you do for $10 million? What would you be willing to do in order to get somebody to give you $10 million? 
And I thought this was interesting, what people would do for $10 million back in the early 90s. So again, it's probably gotten worse. But 25% of them said for $10 million, I'd abandon my entire family right now. 23% said for $10 million, I'd become a prostitute for a week. 16% of them said for $10 million. So think about that. You're looking at like at 16%, what is that, one in seven? Said for $10 million, I'd leave my spouse right now and go. I'd run. 10%, one in 10, said I'd withhold testimony and let a murderer go free in court. 7% of them said for $10 million, no questions asked, I'd go and kill a stranger. And then think about this, 3%. So about 1 in 30, 1 in 33 or so. Said for $10 million, I'd give up my kids right now and go. I mean, that's mind-blowing. And I hope that when we hear those stats that we're thinking to ourselves, I mean, that would never be me, right? We would never do any of those things. But I heard this quote years ago, and I think this is a good way to close. The quote says that money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier and thirstier you're going to become. And so my encouragement to us this morning, and I hope this is helpful for you. I hope you hear my heart behind this and why we talk about these things in our church. Is don't let the pursuit of wealth and don't let the hoarding of what we have become the controlling factor of our lives. Don't let that control us and don't let it reposition itself into the lordship where Jesus belongs. Instead, the scripture teaches us over and over to live with our hands like this. Culture says do this all the time. What's mine is mine and I need to get more of it and I'm going to keep it because it's for me. What does the scripture teach? Scripture teaches to live like this, that what I have is God's and God has let me be the manager of what is his. And so if the Lord chooses to use it in some way for his kingdom's sake and for the expansion of the gospel somewhere around the world, Lord, this is yours. But God, while it's in my hands, I'll take care of it. And I'll do with it what you call me to do with it. Don't do this. That's not what God's called us to do as Christians. We live like this, that everything is God's and we're simply managers. We made it. Can I pray for us? God, we love you so much. Father, thanks for your word. Got to pray now. Um, Lord, as we just simply respond in song, I think each of us would say in some capacity that we have been extravagantly blessed by you in ways that we do not deserve. And so, Father, I pray that this morning's message, that our, our look into Matthew chapter 6, would simply serve as a reminder that at the end of the day, just as Romans 10 says, that you are the Lord of our lives. And Lord, we don't want anything else to take that position. And God, I pray that we utilize whatever we have. God, not to keep, not to just hoard, but God, we see everything that we have as an opportunity to be used for your kingdom. And God, we thank you for entrusting those things to us that you have. So God, I pray now as we sing, that we would sing with loud voices, joining the chorus of the angels. 
who we know are already flying around the throne and joined in with the saints singing the praises that you and only you deserve. God, we love you so much. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.